good morning. Uh, congratulations. You made it. We made it through Christmas. Um, yes. Uh, size. I mean, as wonderful as Christmas is, um, and as much as we celebrate Jesus and family, um, it's just stressful sometimes. Um, there's a lot of preparation and planning and cooking and shopping. And for us traveling, we just got back from Tennessee. So we drove 2,000 miles um, in the course of a week to go see uh, my family who have relocated down there. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I feel like it's like a sigh of release and an accomplishment uh, to be on the other side of a great um, holiday. Um, and that's why I've really appreciated this series, uh, because it's helped in the lead up to Christmas to focus um, and to really remember the meaning of Christmas and who Jesus is specifically. And I feel like I've been here with you. Oh, yeah, thanks. Um, I feel like I've been along for the ride and the journey with you here at Renovation Church via Apple Podcasts. Um, and so I've listened to every message um, in the series. Uh, yesterday as I was taking the bus uh, up from Brooklyn, I listened to Mike's uh, last message from Christmas Eve. And so um, I have been really encouraged and it's helped me to see Jesus more clearly and to reinvigorate um, and inspire again um, a love for who he is. I mean, I literally texted Mike um, a couple weeks ago as I was listening to one of his messages, and I said, Mike, I have tears in my eyes just remembering how good the news is that Jesus loves me despite my failings, despite my inadequacies. Just that alone, the way Mike presented that, um, was wonderful. Uh, and so this series has been great, and I'm excited to get to kind of cap it off today. Um, with the last message. And we're going to kind of fast forward a bit. Mike, um, on Christmas Eve, was in the 12th chapter of John, kind of in the middle of, the, of his ministry. And now we're going to fast forward all the way to chapter 20. Um, and that's where we're going to pick up today. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to uh, the book of John, chapter 20. And we're going to start in verse 19 to 20, and we're going to go to 23. Uh, so John 20, 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from them, from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people say, Amen. Got that from Mike. I like that. Um, well, six years ago, uh, my oldest son Judah was eight days old. He was born three days before Christmas in the midst of a snowstorm in Rochester. And I'll never forget those first few weeks and really those first days of his life, the excitement. We had so much anticipation in becoming parents. We had looked forward to it, Sarah and I. Both of us always wanted to be parents. It was never a question. 
And part of that comes from my story, sort of my, my family of origin. My dad left when I was young, and so um, part of me becoming a father was sort of a redemptive way um, to sort of make sense of my narrative, that I could now be that father that, that I had really lacked. And so we so look forward to the birth of Judah, and he was born um, without complications, and, um, and it was wonderful. It was so, so much joy in those moments. Um, as Judah got a little bit older, though, it became clear um, that there were some issues. He wasn't developing according to you know, the, the typical milestones. And um, some of those early warning signs were um, you know, an inability to hold up his head, some physical weakness. Um, and then when he was about three months old, he was diagnosed with severe hearing loss. And I'll never forget that moment either, just the devastation we felt realizing that this perfect ideal of what we thought parenthood was going to be like, what we thought um, our child would be, was different. It was shattered. Little did we know, two months later, we would be um, in Strong Hospital at the University of Rochester undergoing a series of tests, specialists analyzing Judah. And the result of that after five days was that the hearing loss was really just a symptom of a larger underlying rare genetic condition that affected lots of different parts of Judah's body. No cure, no real prognosis because it was such a rare disorder. And five months into being parents, we were reeling. We were in a sense of chaos. The uncertainty, the fear, the anxiety about the future, what we thought this was going to be like was going to be much different. You guys can relate. You've been in situations like that where the trajectory that you anticipated all of a sudden is completely changed. And I share that story to give some context to the passages I just read because I think it it gets close to the environment and the atmosphere that the disciples were experiencing. The crucifixion has just taken place. Jesus, the one they loved, their leader, their teacher, the one who they've seen perform miracles, who they've had personal relationship with, who's impacted their lives, who they thought was going to just totally change things. And and the trajectory that they saw has now been totally changed and altered at the cross. And they're in a state of disillusionment, chaos, uncertainty, fear. And that's where John chapter 20 picks up. Jesus has died. He's been buried. Mary goes early on the first day, which was Sunday, to the tomb and and is shocked to find that the tomb is empty. The the stone is rolled away from the entry and Jesus' body is not there. She runs back and gets Peter and John and and they they look and and analyze the scene and and Jesus is not there. The, The linen cloths that he was wrapped in for burial are folded neatly. It's perplexing. It adds to a sense of uncertainty. Mary stays grieving the sorrow and the pain at losing uh, this amazing friend and teacher and savior, one who had personally impacted her life. She stays weeping at the tomb. Angels appear to her, and then Jesus himself reveals himself to Mary. She runs back and tells the disciples what she has seen, and that's where this part of the passage picks up. But it's interesting because... It says that the disciples were afraid. 
and they were locked inside for fear of the Jewish leaders. As we know, the Jewish leaders, in collaboration with the Roman authorities, had put Jesus to death. And now the closest followers of Jesus are fearful of their own future. And even after the report from Mary that Jesus is alive, he spoke to me, they're still fearful. And they're literally locked inside of a room, locked inside of a home. And then Jesus appears to them. It's kind of a strange, I mean, we don't really know how he does this, but we can sort of assume that his new resurrected body maybe can bend some of the laws of nature. We're not really sure how it happens, but the scriptures state that the door was locked and then Jesus appeared. He was there. He came in. And the first thing that I want to point out that I think is significant are the first words that Jesus speaks to the disciples. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, like what would the first words that Jesus would speak to you, like what would they be? And I love the first words that Jesus speaks to them. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. You have to remember the context. Peter, the leader of the disciples, has betrayed Christ. He denied him three times. Think about the regret and the shame that he feels at the decisions that he's made. They're fearful. They're locked inside this room. They're not bold. They're not out proclaiming that Jesus is alive. They're isolated. And yet Jesus' first words are not words of rebuke. They're not words of condemnation. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't uh, recite all all the ways that he has prophesied that he would rise again. He doesn't say, why didn't you guys understand or why didn't you believe me? No, the first words that he speaks are, peace be with you. And I think that's so fitting because Jesus has just accomplished the most amazing feat in human history which makes that peace possible. What Jesus accomplished at the cross was no less than peace with God, mankind and God, an opportunity for peace in that relationship. Before the cross, we were at war with God, literally. Mankind rebelling against their creator, going the opposite way. And at the cross, Jesus brutally beaten, takes upon himself the full weight of humanity's sin, the punishment for that. He dies and is buried, and then God raises him from the dead. And he accomplishes forgiveness for that sin, a way that we could have peace with God. And so the first words that he speaks to the disciples are peace, because he comes bearing a gospel of peace. I love the tenderness and the kindness, the love that Jesus has. He comes with words of peace. I also think it's fascinating that he has this new resurrected body, and in God's perfect design, right, um, he could have done it many ways, but Jesus' new body still has remnants and visible um, reminders of the crucifixion. The wounds are still present, and the disciples inspect these wounds. And I think that's important as well, that in God's design, he saw it fit. To raise Jesus from the dead, he has this new body, and yet the wounds of the cross are still there. It reminds me of Mike's sermon from a couple weeks ago when he talked about this sort of contradictory, at least in our minds it seems contradictory, that God would be most glorified by seeing Jesus suffer and die on a cross. That it's in the suffering of Jesus, it's in his death on our behalf, that we see the character of God 
his mercy, his love, his grace. That's who God is. And Jesus now bears those marks of that grace, of that forgiveness, of that sacrifice, of what he accomplished on the cross. Christianity cannot be separated, obviously, from the suffering of the cross. And it won't for all eternity. Jesus bears those marks to remind us and to show what God has accomplished. The greatest act of grace and mercy. And he shows the disciples those wounds. I think it's important just to pause, just for a second, and have kind of like a theological moment here. Um, In Christianity and evangelicalism, I think it can become kind of commonplace to talk about the resurrection. Uh, We talk about people kind of being brought back from the dead like it's very normal. Um, It's actually pretty crazy when you think about it. Like, Jesus died, and now he's appearing to the disciples. Um, I don't know about you, but that doesn't happen every day. Um, and in our culture today, in 2018, that is still considered pretty crazy. Like the idea that that could happen. The Atlantic, the magazine, um, had a story a few years ago asking uh, atheists what they thought about death. I thought it was interesting, one of the responses from one of the readers, she said, I've always felt that when I die, I am dead and gone. My conscious life will end, my interactions with others will end, and I will simply be gone. I don't know what causes consciousness, call it spirit, call it soul, but I expect that it will end. My afterlife will be in the memories of those I knew, those who loved me, those who carry me on in their hearts. I myself cease to exist. Um, that, That is a predominant view that many people hold. Um, I think it's difficult to stomach, but I think you can will yourself to believe that. If we are a collection of physical parts and molecules and that's it, that there's no transcendent component to us, that there's no creator, then logically the outcome is after we die, nothing occurs. Um, This reader believes that. Many other people believe that in our culture today in the city of Syracuse, in the suburb of North Syracuse. Um... And yet Christianity fundamentally disputes that. The narrative is not that there is no life after death, but conclusively Jesus, the first fruits and evidence of the reality that there is more to life after we die for all of us, no matter what we believe, that we are created with uh, an eternal destiny. And I think that's amazing news. The reality of the resurrection, although it has become commonplace because we're so... um, brought up in it and surrounded by it, uh, I just wanted to pause and reflect on how amazing it is. Um, Often the criticism of Christianity is that Christians are too focused on heaven, too focused on the world to come, and not uh, focused enough on fighting injustice and the problems of here and now. I think that's valid at times, but I also think, let's be honest, life is hard. We each suffer quite a bit in different ways, and I am looking forward to the end of that. I'm looking forward to a new body that doesn't decay and get older, that doesn't get disease and fatigue. I'm looking forward to seeing my little boy with a new body uh, that isn't malfunctioning. Um, the resurrection is good news. Um, 
And Jesus is the first fruits of that. He demonstrates that to his disciples conclusively, uh, which is a pretty big deal. Um, so I just wanted to pause and, and kind of uh, point that out. Um, after the disciples have inspected his wounds, he's there in the flesh. Um, Jesus gives some instructions. In each of the Gospels, there's a commissioning. Each of the Gospels has a different type of commissioning, uh, meaning post-resurrection, after Jesus has rose from the dead, before he ascends to the Father, he gives some last instructions to his disciples. And this is John's version in chapter 20. I'll read it one more time. This is what Jesus says. He repeats his greeting, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And that's been the whole theme, right, of this series, is the way that Jesus was sent to earth to fulfill the will of the Father, and all the ways that he demonstrated who God was to people, all the purposes that he fulfilled, culminating in the cross, and then his resurrection. And now Jesus is saying, in the same way that you have observed me, in the same way that you followed me and seen all the works that I've done and all that I've accomplished, that work isn't ending. The work is just beginning in a way. It's continuing and I'm inviting you into that work to participate with an eternal, redemptive plan that God has had in mind throughout all eternity. And it's a commissioning. As the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. I love Mike's... Um, it was, I can't remember which of the sermons it was, um, but he had this quote that I really liked. He said this, with all these priorities we have in suburban, middle to upper class America of what life should be about, maybe we should put on the priority list warning people about the reality of death that is caused by sin. And that challenged me. I mean, my, my life has been, or at least vocationally for the last 10 years, in the missionary missions world, yet hearing that quote is like it's so easy for us to forget that we're part of that sending. Um, there's a succession that began with those disciples in that room when Jesus appeared, and we're part of that line. Without those disciples obeying that command to be sent, we wouldn't be here. We're part of this 2,000-year history of people being sent. Um, and I love that quote uh, that Mike shared. So how did they go from being scared in this atmosphere of chaos and uncertainty, being isolated behind closed doors to being bold proclaimers of this gospel of peace. What was the change? I think it's important what Jesus says next in the commissioning. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Specifically in verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is another huge paradigm shift, just as the resurrection was this incredible demonstration um, of the way that Christ had defeated and conquered death and our own anticipation for that reality. This is a whole new paradigm in the way God would relate to mankind. Historically, uh, God's Spirit had a geographical presence in the Ark of the Covenant first, in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, people would travel to this particular place to worship God because his presence was there. 
This is a totally different paradigm. The passage begins with this sense of absence. Jesus is absent. The passage ends with presence. You can go back in the book of John, chapter 15 and 16, Jesus foretelling that this would happen. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send the counselor, the Holy Spirit. Literally, God himself would come to dwell within people. We would become the temple. Where we go, God goes. And in that, we're not left alone to accomplish this mission that Jesus has just given us. And I just want to stop there because I think often, at least for me, that can be the most difficult thing to really embrace. Is I, I get the mandate. I get, I get uh, the idea of being part of this huge redemptive mission to bring the gospel to the world, but I often forget the key part, that we were never meant to do it in our own strength, in our own wisdom, and by ourselves. But I think at least for me, maybe it's because of uh, my family of origin or some of the wounds from you know, relational stuff, but this sense of being alone is actually more normal for me than not. And I think as a result, even though I know by faith that, that God is with me and that he wants me to rely on him to accomplish the works that he has for me, uh, I can often neglect his presence. And I can just sometimes feel like I'm on my own. And this passage from the beginning uh, is making it clear that we were never meant both to live the Christian life for personal uh, devotion and for mission alone. God empowers his people uh, for the mission that he's called us to. And the Holy Spirit is this uh, foreshadowing of Pentecost to come where God would literally empower his people to accomplish the mission. That's how the disciples went from being afraid, isolated, to Peter proclaiming the gospel in the streets. Um, there was a power that came from the Holy Spirit. There was a boldness. There was a confidence. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts. He gives us encouragement. He, rem he reminds us of the things that Jesus has told us. And ultimately, it's the Spirit that does the work as the, as the gospel is proclaimed, right? None come to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. And so the Holy Spirit is so integral in this work and for all of our lives. Um, but it's difficult, right? We can't see him. Um, and it's this work of faith to believe, yes, Lord, you're with me. As I go into difficult situations, you can, you can take me from fear to confidence um, as an act of faith. And that's sort of my big idea, is that Jesus empowers us through the Holy Spirit to move from isolation to invitation, offering peace with God to all who would believe. Jesus empowers us through the Holy Spirit to move from isolation to invitation. That's what the disciples did. They were isolated. They were kind of concerned about their own well-being. And then they move out and change the world. We're in kind of a crazy spot right now as a family. Uh, we have to be out of our apartment by January 15th. Uh, New York City has um, what they call affordable housing, which is broken up into different income brackets. Anyways, long story, they allocate 5% uh, for people with disabilities, specifically physical disabilities. And so we've been applying to these housing lotteries for like three years, and we finally won. It's amazing. Um, and... Uh, but we have to wait until the city approves us. And we've been, anyways, long story short, we've yet to be approved 
and January 15th is coming. Um, and so there's a lot of uncertainty for us. Um, but through that, it's been really good because we've been reflecting on the last two and a half years in our apartment building. Our apartment building has 72 different apartments. Um, and it's been a really unique season for us in terms of uh, interacting with our neighbors. And when we lived in Rochester, we owned a house, we lived in the city, and we knew some of our kind of immediate neighbors. Um, but nothing like what we've experienced in the last two and a half years living in this apartment building. Um, I think it's just, it's a combination of a lot of factors. I think when you live in close proximity to people and share common spaces, there's more opportunity to interact with one another. Um, but we've made some really significant relationships. And as we get ready to move, what we're going to miss most are the people. Um, and as we reflected on whether or not we were going to get the apartment, the conclusion that we came to was, at the end of the day, what's going to matter most, I, I mean, it's Val, we want, we want space that fits our family. But what matters more than the space for our family is the people that we're going to be around. Because that's what we're going to miss the most in our current place, is all these neighbors who we've built relationships with. Phoebe, who lives on the first floor, who is a single mom, who we've been able to uh, become incredible friends with and babysit each other's kids. Mike and Aaron, uh, photographer and designer who we've had dinner with and grown in relationship with. Um, Lulu, uh, this Venezuelan woman who's in her 80s, who lives at the end of the hall, who uh, our son Oliver you know, goes over almost every day to knock on her door just because he wants sweets. Um, and she loves it, though. Um, I could go on and on. Uh, it's the people that God places us near that's most significant. So when I think about this idea of being sent, um, I don't have all the answers. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like the older I get, the harder it becomes to stay focused um, and to not become self-absorbed and the more responsibilities we have as family, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think one of the things I'd like to encourage you with is just observe where you already are. Where, where do you find yourselves? What's your neighborhood? Who are your neighbors? Um, that's a great place to start. Sometimes we think we have to develop a whole kind of new paradigm for engaging people when it's often right where we already are, where we can make the most impact. This series has, all, has been all about uh, the life of Jesus, seeing him, observing the way he's been sent. I love some of the big ideas from the series. The nature of Christmas is tied to the nature of who Jesus Christ is. When we truly know who Jesus is, it becomes a life-changing reality. This wasn't part of the passage, but John concludes this chapter by saying this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have life in his name. I don't have a lot of how-tos. I don't think describing methods is the most effective. And I don't think that's what this passage is really getting at. Um, but I do think this passage is wedged in a chapter that is in the middle of a book that is all about this theme of belief and believing in Jesus, truly seeing Jesus and believing. And I don't know any other um, motivation that is more compelling to be part of God's redemptive mission than truly seeing Jesus. The worship that we just experience is probably the best fuel is coming, and what this series has done is helped us bring us face-to-face -face with who Jesus is. And honestly, I think that's our greatest challenge, is staying close to Jesus and remembering the gospel. Um, 
It really is. I mean, it's so easy to lose our focus. It's so easy to take back control of our lives. The essence of Christianity is that we've renounced leadership of our own lives and said, God, your way is better. You're wiser. You're more powerful. You have authority. And yet I feel like the Christian life is this constant um, tension of taking back authority of our lives and then repenting taking back leadership and then repenting. And when it comes to being part of this mission, I feel like it's the same. And so the theme of this series is really the greatest motivation for being sent, is seeing and believing in Jesus, savoring him, knowing him better. And that's what I've been most inspired by. As I think about being impacted by these podcasts and listening to you guys from afar, that's what has stirred my heart. The mission will come and you can learn methods and ways to share your faith and be a better neighbor. Um, but you can't, you can't learn a method or um, a skill uh, for loving Jesus. That's an internal process that happens in our heart and community. Um, Jesus empowers us through the Holy Spirit to move from isolation to invitation. Where are you? Where, where are those areas in your life relationally where you feel scared and you're kind of in a locked door? Maybe it's not physically, but in, you know those relationships where that's what it feels like. There's fear and there's conversations that you don't even tiptoe towards, especially when it comes to spiritual things. I think that's kind of evidence of this when we're, when we're fearful behind locked doors. How can Jesus empower us through the Holy Spirit to lead us from isolation to invitation. His gospel of peace is worth it. Thanks, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this series. Thank you for lifting our eyes to see Jesus um, for who he truly is. Help us to continue to do that, Lord. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I pray that you would motivate me to know you better. And that out of that, Lord, out of that relationship, um, would come inviting others to know you too. Give us boldness, Lord. I pray against fear, and I pray for confidence through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.